Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me once again this morning to the letter of 1 John. This is near the back of your Bibles. Tiny little letter that we began studying just a couple weeks ago. If you're new to us today, this is our third week in this little first century letter that John, who was an apostle of Jesus, the one called the Beloved, wrote to the churches of the first century concerning what their life in Christ was to look like amidst false teachers coming in, teaching things that were contrary to the apostles. You remember why he wrote this book, why he says he wrote this book, this letter. It says near the end of 1 John, that you might know, John says, that you might know that you have eternal life. Amidst all the other ways that God's Word might move us or challenge us, that is John's overarching goal for his first century hearers. Of course, the Holy Spirit who is here in this place takes His Word and applies it to us in ways that we don't expect in ways that we need. And I trust he'll do that this morning. Week one, we looked at the witness, the prologue of 1 John, where John reminded us that life is found in the person of Jesus, and he focused on the, the personhood of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. This guy really did come in the flesh. He really did die in the flesh. And I know this, John says, because I saw it. I witnessed it. I touched him. I heard him. I was with him. And so, as you, young church, he's saying to his first century readers, as you're trying to discern what to believe, I am a reliable witness. The apostles around me are reliable witnesses. Listen to us. Listen to our teaching. Listen to our testimony. And of course, that's a testimony that we have for us here in the Scriptures And then last week, we looked at the light. John presents God as light, as blinding purity that blinds us in order that we can see ourselves. Remember that? We look at the sun and it creates blotches in our eyesight so we can see our struggle with sin. In order to know ourselves, we've got to look at him. And so today, as we move on in John's letter and his teaching, we are asked to begin that process, to begin that process of knowing ourselves. As we unpack John's words this morning, we are introduced to the first of three tests, as they've been called. Tests that John gives to provide answers for those seeking to have that assurance, seeking to know that they are known by God, whether or not they're on the right path. And over the next few weeks, John's going to be introducing these and then returning to these tech, these tests again and again. Remember in the very first week, uh, I spoke about how John's argumentation in this letter, it's not linear. It's like a spiral staircase. He keeps returning again and again to things he introduces. And so the three tests, just briefly before we jump in and read the text, the three tests that we are going to look at in the next coming weeks are the moral test. Do you obey 
the social test, do you love? And then the doctrinal test, what do you believe? And we're going to get deep into those in the weeks to come. But this week, John wants us, as we kind of dip our toe in just one of them this morning, he wants us to get straight and understand a few things first. And so that's where we are this morning, 1 John chapter 2. Just going to focus on the first six verses this morning of chapter 2. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Listen as I read. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. In our experience, in all of our individual experiences, there are certain words, certain names, certain descriptions that convey to us A tone of seriousness, a tone of tenderness. Maybe when mom calls your full name, Nathan Andrew Hitchcock, come sit down here right next to me, please. Or maybe when they describe who you are to them, my dear daughter, I I need to tell you something. John started his letter with guns a-blazing, remember? Right out of the gate, he was asserting the person of Jesus, that he had been an eyewitness to it all. No greeting, no hello, it's me. But now he's settled in. He came to the door, exercised, but now he sits on the couch and he invites his readers to come sit next to him. My little children, he says. Do you hear the the tender, familial, fatherly care of this older pastor? Remember, John is probably in his 80s at this point in his life. He cares deeply for these people. And he wants them to hear what he has to say. We're going to see more of this familial language. We're actually going to press into it a little bit next week. But it's a reminder that we are brothers and sisters, a family of God. But what does John want to convey through the tenderness and the seriousness of these words. What what is in these verses that I just read? Well, I think we can think about it this morning, meditate on it for a few minutes around two truths. And the first one is this. Knowing Jesus changes us. Knowing Jesus, or we could say being known by Jesus, changes us. 
See, at the heart of John's concern for us, and we hear it right off in this chapter, is that we don't sin. That we're not a people trapped by sin. God doesn't want us to sin. We weren't made for sin. We were created to walk with God, to fellowship with God as he intended, as he designed. But notice John doesn't begin with strategies to to live better. He doesn't begin with new disciplines that you need to build into your life in order that you might not sin. He begins... If we were to go back last week, he actually began with God, with God's blazing brightness and burning purity. We see our sin, we see our darkness, we see our struggle as we look at God, but then what? Well, that's where he goes today. That's why he moves on to the person and work of Jesus. So you see, knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus has done, knowing your place before Jesus, your secure place in Jesus, that is what begins to create change in us. It's inevitable. And so yes, John doesn't want us to sin. He wants us to change. But in order to change, you've got to look at Jesus. You've got to gaze truly at the gospel. And there are two things that John reminds us of and teaches us about the work of Christ in these little verses. And he does it through two powerful words. He teaches about what Jesus has done and he teaches about what Jesus is doing. Let's start with what Jesus has done. What's been done is a death. A sacrifice. Verse 2. He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, propitiation, that's a, that's a big word, right kids? You guys know what propitiation means? Some of your parents don't know what propitiation means. The Greek word behind that English word is used twice in this letter and only two other times in the New Testament. But what does it mean? Before I get there, let me just say this. As as the Bible describes, as the New Testament specifically describes our salvation, what Jesus has accomplished for us, it does so in various terms, through various terms, in various ways. Kind of like sides of a diamond. And these terms, they overlap with one another, they complement one another, but they help us see the fullness of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and I. And I'm not going to throw the Greek words at you, I'm just going to give the English words, the English translations that you'd find in your Bible. What's one of those words? How about the word justification? Right? We've talked about that word. It's a rich word. In the Bible, it's a legal term describing the reality that we are declared righteous before God. How about the word redemption? The word redemption is it's more of an economic term that describes that we've been released from something. We've been delivered from bondage. Another word that the New Testament writers use is the word expiation. 
Expiation is a, is a ritual word which refers to the removal of the guilt of our sin. And now we come to this word, propitiation. Propitiation is actually a relational word. It's relational. Remember, God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all. He is faithful and just. Therefore, our salvation, the mending of our separation between God, must be consistent with His character. A just God and a righteous wrath against sin must be satisfied. In other words, God can't just turn a blind eye. He can't just sweep our sin under the carpet. He can't just hold his nose and swallow and accept us. Nor is he just upset and he just needs some time to cool off and get over with. No, our sin must be appropriately dealt with. And so what does God do? The God who is just and faithful. Well, divine love provides the remedy. An atoning sacrifice is given that can absorb that wrath and restore a right relationship. So as I some English translations, they take that word propitiation and they translate it as atoning sacrifice, but it's even richer than that. Jesus has become the sin bearer, the wrath absorber to all who look to him in faith. It's finished. And that's for us. And it's not just for us, but John says it's for the whole world. And what he means by that is not just his readers, not just Jews, but for everyone far and wide, everyone who turns to him and looks to him in faith. Knowing Jesus changes us. Understanding propitiation changes us. So what might be the application of this? Why why do we need it? Well, it's an encouragement to let Jesus be enough, for one. Right? Don't point to your own goodness. Don't point to anything else. Point to this work alone. That's why it reminded us last week, we never leave the gospel behind. We never leave the cross behind. Because if we do, we'll have a tendency, we'll be tempted to think that salvation is up to us. And that we need to do something. I was listening to a sermon this week. I came across a a wonderful clip. It's a sermon not on this text. It's on a different text. It's a sermon by Alistair Begg, Scottish preacher, now leads a church in Cleveland. Some of you know who that is. And he was describing a situation of the thief on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross that cursed Jesus and then Jesus says, As the thief on the cross comes to realization of who this is, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And Alistair Begg goes through this conversation that the angel has with the thief on the cross, kind of confused. Why are you here? How did you get here? And the thief on the cross doesn't really know. And he says, I don't really know. 
All I know is that the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. That's the only answer. Not I had faith. Not I believed. Not I walked in goodness 75% of the time. But I'm with him. He said I could come. He said I can be here. So yes, John is going to challenge our conduct. He's going to ask us to examine ourselves, to look at our lives, but where this begins, where this ends, and what must be all throughout is what has been done by Jesus. But there's more. There's more to the fullness of the gospel that John describes here. Jesus came not only to be the sacrificial lamb, the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for sins, but he also came to be a defense attorney. He came to be a defending lawyer, and he's doing it right now. Verse 1, if anyone does sin, John takes a realistic view of his readers and, and us here in this room. He knows This is going to happen. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's the same Greek word that John uses in his gospel to describe the Holy Spirit. Same word. But here, he uses it in a legal sense. It literally means one called alongside to help. And this is the other crucial work of Jesus, of the gospel that John wants his readers and us to see and to marvel at. In the courtroom of heaven, as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, he pleads for you and for I. He's not trying to distract the Father so the Father doesn't see how we're screwing up. He doesn't plead, oh, they're innocent. They don't really mean what they're doing. He doesn't plead our righteousness because we don't have it. He pleads his own righteousness. Romans 8, 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, our sins imputed to him, that deals with God's wrath. The debt is paid. But that puts the account at zero, (laughs) right? The debt's paid, but there's nothing there now. That's not riches. That's not reward. That's simply a second chance. Okay, I've forgiven your debt. Now go do it. No, that's not the gospel. We need more than a second chance, and Jesus gives us more than a second chance. He gives us his righteousness. He is, what does John say? He is the righteous. And then he pleads your case with that righteousness. Father, these people are mine. They believe in me. They are in me. I am in them. I've paid their debt. I have earned their standing. They're sons and daughters. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have. 
in the gospel. This is comfort for sinners. And knowing this, knowing this Jesus changes us. It's got to. I started reading a great book. We read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland last year. He's written a new one called Deeper. Excellent book. I was reading it this week and he said this. He said, Jesus did not die and rise again on our behalf back then, only to stand now with arms crossed, seeing how we'll do in response. No, he continues to work on our behalf. And I don't know about you, but I I need this. Because we have an enemy. I have an enemy. I have an enemy that likes to constantly accuse me and throw my sin in my face and tell me that I'm not worthy, to remind me that I'm not good enough, to make me anxious and to fill me with guilt. And John reminds us, you don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to listen to those accusations. You've got someone pleading your case. You have an advocate. Just look to him and trust in him and hide in him and let him plead your case. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We're going to sing those words in just a few minutes. Brothers and sisters, this changes us. And that's why John starts here with a gospel foundation rightly understood. Another quote from Dane Ortland: growing in Christ is not centrally improving or adding an experience, but deepening. You will not change until you get straight who Jesus is. Let him love you into growth. Let him love you into growth. We don't obey to be forgiven. We're forgiven. So in Christ we obey. And that brings us to the second truth and one that really will continue to ripple throughout this letter. And it's this, to know Jesus is to walk like him. To know Jesus is to walk like him. I mean, once you know who he is, once you truly know what he's done, you want to do what he says. It's this desire that proves that we are his. And so John's not saying it doesn't matter what we do. No, it matters what we do. Your conduct needs to be consistent with your confession. Yes, saved by grace, but how do you know that grace has apprehended you? By this we know. It's a phrase that's used seven times in this letter, twice in this passage. By this we know. If we do what he says. John says there are two kinds of people in verses four and five. There are those who say, I know him. You can almost hear those false teachers in the first century churches. I know him. I know him. But there's no fruit. There's no obedience. And John says they're liars. A lack of obedience follows a lack of knowledge. Listen to the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 4, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. What's the fruit of that? There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. It sounds like the evening news. So there's the first kind of person, those who know him, 
or say they know him, but there's no obedience. They're liars. And then John says, there are those who keep his word, and in them, the love of God is perfected. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that this keeping of the word, this keeping of Jesus' commandments, this desire to walk as Jesus walked with all that is in us, This isn't a a flashy flaunting of spiritual strength. It's simply an evidence of God's work in one's life. He took the initiative. It's his love that is doing the work. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For what? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So so this is where we're left today. We'll pick up on this next week as we continue to look at what he says to the churches. Today, we're just left with the need for gospel-grounded introspection. I want you to take your spiritual pulse and see what it tells you. To know Jesus is to walk like him. Ask yourself, does my life observedly, though not perfectly, reflect my Savior, the things that characterized him? His faith, his love, his compassion, his patience, his self-sacrifice? Are they part of my experience? Am I living quorum Deo before the face of God as Jesus did, always mindful of his Father's will, guided by the Spirit, seeking to know what the Spirit desired for him in everything? Do you want to know what he says? Do you want to know his word? Psalm 119 is this rich declaration of the psalmist grabbing hold of God's commands, they're sweet, they're tasty, they're wonderful. There's also some wonderful prayers for strugglers like you and me. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless Things. Oh, we need to hear that. I need to hear that. And give me life according to your ways. And when you've done all of that, and you feel you're spiritually unhealthy, then go back to verses 1 and 2. As the old Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at self, Take ten looks at Christ. You and I were destined for destruction, but we've been saved from the pit by the sin bearer. You and I are never alone. It's never just up to us. We have an ever-present defender. That's good news for us. That's the kind of news that will change us. That's the kind of news that will make us hunger and thirst after righteousness. May it be so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from your servant, John.
inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us. Father, we thank you for the reminder of not just the reality, but the richness of what Jesus has done for us. The propitiation for our sins. A present advocate pleading our case. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you take the gospel and would you stir in each life here repentance and faith and hunger for your word, hunger to walk as our Savior walked. Father, we love you. And we thank you for loving us first. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.